So what is the Higgs boson? <laughs> I fucked if I know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think Jeff sort of went through it. I'm trying to. I um, I'm I'm terrible at writing speeches. Really, I. Um, uh, I've, I've often asked to speak at Trafalgar Square. You know, I do a lot of Palestinian things. I remember uh, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in um, 2006 going on about uh, how Palestine would only be free when they had an entry in the Eurovision Song Contest, and uh, just all these people wanted to just go Viva Hezbollah, Viva. Uh, I'm going on about Bing Banga Boom. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do. <laughs> improvisational workshop going on here. I, um, I'm just going to do like a talk for about 10 minutes to kind of overview really and then I'm going, uh, me and Jeff are going to talk and we'll get into more uh, detailed stuff about comedy. But this is just, uh, as I say, a kind of um, just some observations about uh, how comedy was then and how comedy is now. There's an idea that the comedy store opened in 1979 on the Saturday and on the Monday the owner of Blaze's Club Windsor came in to see Jimmy Tarbuck with his cards saying, I'm sorry Jimmy, there's this new thing called alternative comedy, so you're sacked. In fact, it took a couple of years before the new comedy began to really take hold. The first truly perceptive piece about the comic strip club came in the September 1981 edition of that erudite publication, the London Review of Books, in a long piece written by the critic and author Ian Hamilton. And this is what he says about me. The comic strip compare and guiding star is a comedy store veteran called Alexi Sale, a big man who can move like lightning a pathologically aggrieved pub lout who's, written, who's read some books. <laughs> Sales' posture is manically contemptuous. His rhythm a hysterical crescendo of obscenity with spat-out satirical asides. Both the stance and the timing are near perfect, and within seconds he has the audience agape. Most of them, it seemed, had never been called <laughs> before. For a couple of years after that, it was amazing to be doing comedy. But what I didn't understand, despite all my years of Marxist study groups, was that every revolution contains within it the seeds of its own destruction. And ours soon began to mutate in ways I could never have predicted. For me, the moment resembling Cromwell's suppression of the levellers or Trotsky leading his troops across the ice against an able garrison at Kronstadt was the making of the Young Ones episode, Bambi, during the second, <laughs> during the second series. I drag Marxism into anything, really. Suspecting nothing, I turned up to the studio recording to find several generations of Cambridge footlights were booked to appear in the show. I thought these people were the enemy, I railed at the writers. The whole point of what we were doing was to surely to challenge the smug hegemony of the Oxford-Cambridge Public Schoolboy Comedy Network as well as destroying the old-school working men's club racists. No, that was just you, the writers replied. <laughs> we never subscribe to your demented class war ravings. We think all these people are lovely. Stephen Fry's made us lardy cake. Hugh Laurie's been playing boogie-woogie piano all morning. 
Mel Smith's going to take us for a ride in his gold Rolls Royce later. And Griff Jones has been screaming abuse at minions to make us laugh. <laughs> that was the moment when I realised that what had begun, at least in my mind, as a radical experiment, was slowly moving towards the centre. And I had ceased to be its leader. Not that I should paint myself as some sort of exemplar, a Bill Hicks-like saint who held himself above the seductive lures of success. I craved the money, the big audiences and the fame that all the others craved. I just wanted to do it without my getting my hands dirty by making what I thought of as compromises. Also, it took me years to accept that not everybody wanted to spend a rare night out being shouted at by a rabid, opinionated fat man. (laughs) Since those days, stand-up has evolved into a gigantic industry bigger than aerospace or petrochemicals and employing more people than motor manufacturing. At the very top, comics are playing multiple nights at giant arenas. These shows are only distantly related to what we started in Soho. I have never been to a comedy show at the O2, but I am told that the comedian at these giant events is invisible to the audience, apart from those in the first couple of rows, who instead focus their attention on the giant TV screens to the side of the stage. I am informed that there is often a great atmosphere at a show like this, but it still means that the audience are essentially paying £100 a head to amuse themselves while watching the telly. And given that a lot of these performers are focused on making as much money as they can from what is likely to be a relatively short-lived career, the comedian could pack the first two rows with hirelings, then just simply put on a DVD of their previous tour. Again, I am told that the shows don't change that much from one year to the next. Then they could pay a Romanian big issue seller to caper about on the stage. Nobody would be any the wiser, and they could slip in an appearance at a corporate gig at the same time. (laughs) The comic routines are also different from those experimental early days. Just as McDonald's don't serve anything too spicy, it seems if you want to cater to the mass market of comedy, you have to keep your material extremely bland, telling people stuff they already know about safe subjects such as child-rearing and sheds. (laughs) Still on the upside, there is one legacy from the old Soho days, in that there is not a hint of racism in any of these performances. In the smaller clubs, too, there seems to be a weird kind of conservatism. When I went round the comedy clubs a couple of years ago, it was the oddest experience. The comics would talk about the most intimate sexual things, and the audience were very relaxed. And the only time they became uncomfortable was if anybody touched on politics. However, there are a group of comedians who I feel a sense of allegiance to, who deal in complex ideas, who try and make people think as well as laugh. They are not desperate to join the ranks of those who can fill the giant arenas, but have decided to take a different career path. Despite the alluring possibility of earning immense sums and gaining a gigantic fan base, these performers have made a conscious decision to shun the mainstream of TV panel shows, commercial voiceovers and huge venues. 
They have, I think, instead decided that there is a more artistic satisfaction to be gained from a long career spent doing more interesting, innovative work in small to mid-sized venues to intelligent and open-minded audiences. These are people like Stuart Lee, Daniel Kitson, Robert Ince, Izzy Suti, Josie Long, Tony Law, Bridget Christie, Richard Herring, a much longer list of people I've never seen, but uh, people tell me that they're progressive. Um, <laughs> I'm just trying to impress you. Um, Richard Herring, Robert Newman, Alfie Brown and Paul Foote. I think of these as my true children, and I hope now that I've returned to comedy after 17 years away, they will accept their old estranged dad back into the family home. Thank you. So most of this is going to be a look back really I suppose over the last however many years yeah. it's been yeah. um, what led you to be at the comedy store then in the whenever it was late 70s early 80s uh, 1979 made that's, that's when the world changed um, well I uh, I was uh, I was an art school graduate I went to you know I wanted to get further education and so, but I was very unacademic, and so the only thing that I could do was paint and draw. And so, I did a two-year foundation at uh, Southport College of Art, and then I got into I got a place at um, Chelsea School of Art. And then, once I graduated from Chelsea, I was basically uh, unemployed for six years. And uh, you know, you, it's like that gag, isn't it? Yeah, why don't art students look out the window in the morning so they'll have something to do in the afternoon? It's, it's <laughs> You know, wanted, you know, you don't see them adverts, you know, wanted people who make khaki marks on canvas. Um, so I was just, I was, I mean, I had this sense that I had a vision, really. I, I just always had this sense that I had something to say. And, but I never knew how it was, how I was going to articulate it. Art school was a tremendous, you know, I mean, there's the reason that a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, you know, pop musicians and stuff being to art school, because you get this kind of art school mentality, a way of looking at the world. Uh, so, um, I, I, and, and a friend of mine, after I'd been, in, you know, kind of unemployed for a couple of years and doing odd jobs and stuff, a friend of mine asked me to be in a Brecht cabaret troupe uh, that he was he was putting together. Um, he was in the he was in the Communist Party, like, uh, you know, like as uh, as my parents had been, and so I started doing that. And then the the, um, the theatre group split up around about nineteen. Uh, maybe 1977, 1978, and I just had this idea that there was no, there was no comedy really out there for people like myself. You know, there was absolutely no. There was a few ex-folkies like Billy Connolly and Jasper Carrot who were just starting to do anecdotal comedy, but apart from that, there was just the, um, just all these racist working men's club uh, comics, and so I just had this thought that there was no. I had a vague idea that. There was a kind of hip kind of comedy in the States, you know, guys. In, this was only based on seeing the Dustin Hoffman movie, Lenny. And um, uh, I think that was it, actually. Just, um, and I, I, well, I'd also watched it. There was, I'd seen this music film called Dynamite Chicken, which was produced by uh, John and Yoko. And it mostly had um, soul acts on it and stuff and like rock bands like you know, Shannon R. 
and stuff. But in between, there was these little, tiny little bits of Richard Pryor, very, very young, I mean, virtually a teenager then, uh, doing stand-up. And I just thought, well, that's amazing, this kind of anecdotal material. So that had influenced me as well, and just a vague sense that there was this kind of hip political comedy in the States. And so I just started writing this stuff for me and, uh, and the other guy that who'd been left in the, in the theatre group. And we just performed, like, in people's front rooms and then... Um, uh, student unions and stuff like that, but we didn't know anybody else. But then uh, Peter Rosengarten and Don Ward opened. Uh, you know, after seeing the the version in Los Angeles, uh, decided to open the comedy store in 1979. And um, my wife Linda saw uh, the advert for the comedy store in um, Private Eye, and I went along and auditioned. And they offered me the job of. MC because I was the first person who turned up there. Who, not the first person who turned. Well, the first person who turned up there who wasn't crazy, and um, they they just offered me. The, I mean, I saved their bacon really. I mean, I didn't know how much of a fix they were in really. Uh, so, and then and then the comedy store opened in 1979. Now, gradually, I you know the, the, I had always felt that that what was needed was um, I needed to be part of a milieu, you know, I needed to know other people who, was, who thought like me and, you know, about comedy and stuff. And so it gradually people started to turn up who, who did think the same way as I did, you know, at the comedy store, really. You know? we'll, mo- we'll move on in a little bit, but yeah. I'm just also interested in what the... Because if comics start now, there's a kind of... There's a, there's a fairly established, over the last 10 years or 15 years or so... Uh, process for them to you know they'll do open spots then they'll do five or ten minutes and then and they'll work around the circuit and there's an ongoing debate about whether there's loads of clubs now or not many clubs and whether clubs are dying and all that sort of thing but there is a circuit for people to to learn their uh, routines on was there did you have that it's it strikes me that you didn't it strikes me that you didn't go and do open spots 10 minutes and then half an hour and then i mean presumably you didn't do your hour at edinburgh and then tour it and the whole process that happens now and what was it like? People asked you to do gigs and you said yes and they rang you up and that was it? You'd either do three minutes or an hour and a half, or, you know. Um, yeah, well, you know, we were, we were devising everything for the first time, really. And that, there's a great liberation in doing that. It's not necessarily, you know, things weren't that codif- you know, codified as they are now. Um, uh, so, but <clears throat> I think pretty quickly... You know the, the the things that exist now, um, you know the twenty minute, the you know the you know the whatever the you kind of you probably hit the, those things exist because they are the best ways to do things, and so you pretty quickly hit on a thing that if you were going to be doing a pub and like there was six or seven other people on the bill, then you'd do twenty minutes. If you were good, then you know my ambition was to get out on the road and um, and tour you kind of feel like about an hour and a half is about right. And so I started playing theatres pretty, you know, by about mm, three or four hundred seaters probably by about 1982, something like that. And, you know, I'd do an hour and a half. And so you kind of, you kind of work that shit out for yourself pretty quickly that that's the right way to go about things, really, I think. Who else was doing the, that touring circuit with you at the time? Um... Nobody. It was just me. Just you. It's just me. Um, I think I. Well, I. I. I was the first to get on telly. I um, did this. 
sort of semi-disastrous live TV show, uh, show called OTT, which was a, a spin-off of the kids' show, Tis Was. And that ran from... Um, that ran from January to March uh, 1982. And so I had a bit of TV exposure then. And so, and there also, there was all the, you know, the stuff in the papers about the, 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 the you know, the new, the alternative comedy and stuff like that. So I started, I think I probably started touring in 1981 and I played like somewhere like Theatre Royal, Barry St. Edmunds, that have like, I think I was about 400, something like that. I think I did that on my first tour. Uh, Liverpool Everyman places and so um, but there was I think I started so I was the only one of the comic strip crew who was doing that once the young ones went out in late 82 then they did a tour I think in 83 and they were much more successful than me and uh, it made me really jealous and angry and um, uh, then so then the young ones were touring and then Rick Male and, and with Ben Elton and support started touring 83, 84. Um, I think that was it playing the theatre circuit, really. I can't think there was anybody else apart from Billy Conley and Jasper Carrot and Mike Harding, but the, 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 you know, from a previous generation, really. And tell us about what, how did, what happened to get you to the young ones? How did that happen? The young ones. Um, well, the, I mean, all the all the um, the main protagonists in the young ones had, had, had been at the comics, uh, the comedy store, the Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson and Peter Richardson, Nigel Planer, um, uh, had all turned up at the comedy store during the first year, um, and uh, so that we were friend, we was and and then we all moved to the comic strip club because we felt that the the uh, the comedy store was a bit too much of a circus, and so Rick Mail, Adrian Edmondson, Peter Richardson, Nigel Plainer, Arnold Brown, and then later French and Saunders. We were all at the comedy strip club, and then we went on tour, and so we became friends. But then Rick and Lisa, and then Ben, uh, you know, just wrote, pitched uh, the young ones to Paul Jackson, and they offered me because I'd been the MC, really, I'd been the father figure, and also if they annoyed. You know, at the comedy store, if they annoyed me, I'd put them on at 4 a.m. So they had, to, they, they had to be nice to me. And I don't think they realised... I don't think they realised that they didn't need me anymore, really. So they, they, they asked me if I'd like to be in the, com, in the young ones. And I, I said, well, yeah, but I, like, I don't want to be, like, just one character. I want to be, like, a multiplicity of characters, and I don't want to... And so they were really nice to me and, and you know, obviously wrote me a different character in each uh, episode. But that was the making of me, really. That I think I was very lucky to to be part of the young ones because I don't know what would have happened really if just from OTT and stuff. What would have happened if I hadn't been in the young ones? Whether I would have sustained my uh, ascent, really. Uh, and it's a, you know it's a show that I was very proud to to have been part of. Really. And then you kept gigging. Uh, late 80s, early 90s. When did you stop? I stopped gigging in, in the UK in 95. And my last gig was actually in uh, Perth, Western Australia in uh, 96. And why did you stop? I just kind of run out of the run out of road, really. I, well, and now I know why. I didn't really know then. That, that, that stand-up character that I did was, was not me. He was a comic persona. And he had a limited thing, 
range of things he could talk about, really, because he is, like, as, you know, um, Ian Hamilton said, this kind of aggrieved pub loud. And, you know, you know, he couldn't... I thought it was comedy that was a fault, that comedy was limited, but, in fact, it was just him, really. He was just very limited. And so I was just sick of of doing that material, I suppose. I was, I was tired of it and couldn't see how I could expand it, how I could expand... Um, my stand-up work, and so I just I stopped really. You know? I was tired again. I think if you've been a you know a pioneer, I think it, it kind of it wears you out as well. I think I think we were, I think I was tired of, of forging that you know circuit really. And uh, you haven't said this, but were you slightly disillusioned by what else was happening in live comedy at that time? You felt you didn't fit in with that. Um, well, I didn't. I mean. I didn't fit in with it, but then I mean, that, that was me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not criticising anybody else for that. I mean, you know, the world changed. And, like, you know, I mean, as I said, again, I said in the speech, you know, it turned out that people didn't want to go out for a night and be yelled at by this fat man telling them what shitbags they were, you know. That they, once they kind of twigged that they could have people who'd, you know, be nice to them... <laughs> They went, well, why are we listening to this fat fucker? You know, I mean, you know, there was a certain core that, you know, I had my audience, but the mass audience, no, they, um, uh, you know, they quickly, uh, you know, realised, like, you know, with the young ones and then French and Saunders and that, that they, they were... And then there was, you know, there was Ben as well and, and all, you know, all, all that, really. The, um, uh, and then later on, I suppose, there was also, I think, that... I mean, certain aspects of when, like, Frank Skinner and that, they started rolling back, um, you know, the, some of the advances that we made. That I think Frank and David's act was very misogynistic. So they, they started rolling back some of the, you know... So I, I suppose I felt a bit peeved about that. But also, I'm not, you know, I'm not a... Jo- I mean, I'm not, a, you know, a clubbable person. I'm not a joiner. I never, I never went to the Comedy Awards. Have you ever gone to see a lot of other stand-up? Not really. Um, no, I mean, when I was, you know, when I was in it, when they were my mates, you know, I'd go and see Rick, you know, I'd go and see Rick or see, go and see Dawn and Jennifer and stuff. But no, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be something I would choose to do for a night out, really, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why would anybody go and see that? I don't know. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's actually I've started going to see a lot more comedy now, really. And that, I mean, particularly because I was on uh, Soho Theatre last year for five, uh, for five weeks, and uh, so they let me in for nothing now. So um, I've been seeing. I saw Arthur Smith last night. Arthur Smith sings um, Leonard Cohen. So I saw that last night for nothing, and uh, I saw Alfie Brown a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Rob Newman, I saw a couple of weeks ago. Between mid-90s and quite recently, last three years, you didn't do stand-up no, at all? No, So what, just talk to us about what brought you back. I started writing, I wrote my first collection of short stories in 1999, and that, you know, that went, um, and then another collection of short stories, and then three novels, four novels. And that all went, you know, so for about 12 years, I was um, a, a, a proper serious author. Now, I... I I loved everything to do with uh, publishing and with the world of authorship. I was completely entranced with all of it, really. But also one of the things that 
I found I could do was by doing book readings that I started talking about myself. I would talk about my own personal life, but always kind of with a comic twist, really. And then afterwards, I would sign books and talk to the punters, and that was also that was very nice. So I found a kind of more human way of uh, performing, really, that, more, that was about my own real life. And then I also... Uh, but then in 2011, Stuart Lee asked me to do this thing called the last the 1981 show, which was just just kind of stuff about 1981. And so I, at the Royal Festival Hall, and, and I said, yeah. And then when I performed, I just took some stuff out from, I extracted it from the, the book readings and just performed it as stand-up, really. And I just felt this kind of sublime sense of, I mean, I was said it before, but it was, it was sort of like, what people describe dying as being like, that I stepped out into this white light and felt a tremendous sense of love uh, coming back at me over the... Uh, because that's the other thing that I could never accept, and I don't know whether that was me or a kind of post-punk... I could never accept that audiences liked me, you know. I would always... If they started, you know, if things started getting too cosy, I would always attack them, you know? Because, <laughs> like... And I don't, re- I, I don't really know why that was, but it was. Yeah, I mean, I want to, I mean, my friend Dennis is, is is dead now, but he said, you know, my major. Com- what was different about me as a comic was, and this had never, he'd never seen this before, that I didn't want the audience to like me. In fact, if anything, I wanted the audience to dislike, me, which are no comic. I wanted them to laugh, but I wanted them to laugh while disliking me. Which is an I mean, extraordinary challenge, really, to set yourself a very... And, you know, I did it successfully, you know. But, but it, why? I don't know, but now. But um, yeah, all that had, had dropped away, really, that I was so pleased that people, you know, that I could accept their kind of... You know, tremendous affection that I felt that night. And did it, uh, since you've come back, did it feel very different in terms of... I mean, we've talked a little bit about this, about, about management and PR and media and all of that. Does it, did it feel, doing stand-up again, apart from the audiences, obviously, and the, what you've just talked about being loved and not being hated, did it feel very different when you were going well, out the road? Well, actually, the, you other, the other... And you toured a bit. Yeah. Well, the other thing which had got me into doing stand-up, which was actually before the Stuart Lee thing, was in, I think, in about 2010, I think, at ITV did this catastrophic thing called Show Me the Funny, which was a Jason Manford uh, thing where it was like a weird mixture of, like, the X Factor and Great British Bake Off and kind of, you know. But they talked to me about, I think at one point they had this idea (coughs) that there'd be comics who would mentor the contestants. And so they talked to me about that, and I had some meetings with them. And when I was having these meetings with these idiots at ITV, they, um, I, f- I suddenly realised that this is a thing that I care about and I also n- know a lot about, but also don't know anything about. That I, I have n- I've deliberately not paid attention to how the business has evolved, really, apart from you know, what I've kind of deduced. I don't know what it is now. I don't know what the business is. I, 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 don't, know who's, I don't know who anybody is, really. Uh, but I do know, you know, I do know comedy better than, 
you know, better than anybody, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I've, I've always had a kind of messianic sense of, you know, my own greatness, you know, which is not at all affected by the evidence, you know. <laughs> but, and that's all, I mean, having grown up in revolutionary politics, I suppose, where you had to believe, you know, where three men in a, in a, in a kind of kayak could end up taking over China, you know. So I suppose that kind of messianic sense of, of, of self belief has, has always been has run through you know my my life really but I always I always thought I'm a really I know you know I could tell if people would listen you know I mean if I could tell a comic you know exactly what they were doing wrong you know they don't listen but I would tell them anyway um you know I know I intuitively know this business the business of doing comedy <laughs> but I don't know anything about the business of comedy and so one of the things I thought, and I thought, well, that's a kind of a lack, really. And one of the things before I even thought about what kind of stand-up comedy I, I was going to do when I came after doing the thing with Stuart was I spent like a year, more or less, or nine months, going around, just going around the clubs and stuff, figuring out where the schisms are. And that's kind of what I talked about. I mean, it's a bit incoherent, but uh, the kind of figuring out that there the, are the, 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 those different tribes now, that you've got the... Um, You've got the arena guys, then you've got the kind of jonglers, comedy store guys, haven't you? And then you've got Stuart's tribe with the Robin Inces and the, you know, Josie Longs and Daniel Kitson. And I, it, it was vital that I knew about that before I even thought about doing stand-up comedy because then it became about where I would lo locate myself within that, you know. It felt like I was coming home, really. That what, I mean, I'd always said it, but I didn't know that I believed it. I always felt that... Even when I was being an author, I was a comic, you know. I mean, a comic is what I am, you know. A comic, it's always my... You know, talking about giving speeches at, you know, Hyde Park Corner or Trafalgar Square, that I would always try and make gags and weird ones. And that's not what people want, but that's my default position that I will always... I'll always do that. I mean, my mother died last year, and, and, and people said, you know, you're going to speak at the, um, you know, talk at her funeral. And I said, no, because I'll just be getting pissed off if I don't get laughs you know what I mean I'll just I'll be really annoyed if the gig doesn't go well because I'll see it as a gig my mother's funeral and so uh, you know I absolutely refused it to, 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 yeah I couldn't I couldn't speak um but that's I mean I'm a comic that's I am a comic I was a comic before there was comedy before there was my kind of comedy I was still a comic and there is a there's a a fellow feeling um, you know, I always, I mean, I did it as a gag, you know, I used to say, I, I feel a fellow feeling with all comics, even though those other guys, you know, the, 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 you know, the right wing guys, the working men's club guys, I feel that we're soldiers in the same war. There is a fellow feeling, I feel, you know, a sense of um, comradeship with all comedians, really, that, you know, I don't feel with any, any other any other type of, uh, of person, really, you know. OK. Well, um, Alexis Ale, thank you very much. Thank you.